From Community Public Radio, this is the CPR News. From New York, I'm Don DeBar. Today we go to Moscow to speak with analyst Mark Sloboda. We're going to discuss what's going on in and around Ukraine again and uh, sort of update what's happened in the past week since we last spoke. And our beginning point is an article that's in Newsweek uh, on the 12th, dated by uh, William M. Arkin. Uh, it's entitled, How U.S. Intelligence Sees Russia's Behavior After Butch. Uh, we spoke uh, about thanks Butch for having me. It's week. always an honor and a pleasure and, to be uh, with you on CPR. Our pleasure. And honor. Okay, so, um, you know, something that really caught my attention this week um, is another article out of Newsweek by William Arkin. Um, the article is uh, How U.S. Intelligence Sees Russia's Behavior After Bucha. And he previously had an article uh, back on uh, March 22nd. Uh, Putin's bombers could devastate you could devastate Ukraine, but he's holding back. Here's why. And both of these pieces are pieces where there is a quiet but firm pushback on what the U.S. government and mainstream media framing of the conflict. Now, this isn't speaking to you know what Newsweek is in general. I'm talking about. About the because it's a lot of what they're saying, writing about the, the, the you know the the intervention is garbage. Uh, but I'm drawing specific attention to these two articles by William Arkin, and it has to be noted that most of these articles are about his conversation with serving people at the Defense Intelligence Agency and senior people in the Pentagon who are obviously speaking to him off the record because they really disagree with, one, uh, the way the Biden administration is handling this crisis, and they seem to be even more concerned with the general uh, uh, hysterical tone of the uh, media and, and government narrative on this. Um, gotcha. Mostly because of the way, because first of all, it presents a danger to any future conflicts they're involved in. You you would guess, uh, but but also I guess out of a a sense of of professionalism or or something. Now it's important I think to note who William Arkin is because he's someone that I have always paid attention to, but even more so now. Uh, so he's actually a, a military vet, like like me uh, himself. He served in the U.S. Army. Um, and he served in U.S. Army intelligence uh, in uh, West Berlin in the 70s. Wow. So that tells you that he's definitely got inside scoops and resources. Right. Um, he's served as a military analyst for uh, NBC News. Um, he has um, – uh, also written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. Right. He's been a fellow at uh, the Kennedy School of Government uh, uh, Harvard, at uh, Harvard. Yeah. Um, he has advised 
uh, he has been an official advisor to the, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the CIA, the Office of Chief of Naval Operations, the Air Force, the Central Command, the DIA, uh, so on and so on, right? So you get the idea. This is uh, when he writes something about military, it's serious. He's also the co author of a book um, uh, in, in uh, 2010. Uh, with Dana Priest called Top Secret America. And this is actually something that I think anyone who studies security, intelligence, anything uh, should should have read. And it talks about the blow up of the U.S. national security state, uh, particularly after 2001 uh, and how it just become this complete uh, behemoth with its with its own, you know, uh, universe inside, basically. Um, and it's a, a really important book, I think. Uh, so when he, he started also, talking about Ukraine, I started paying attention. Yeah, he also, just as an aside, he also co-authored four volumes of the Nuclear Weapons Data Book series for the NRDC, for the Natural Resources Defense Council, which are reference books on nuclear weapons. The second volume revealed the location at the time he published it of all U.S. and foreign nuclear bases worldwide. And Reagan wanted to prosecute him for revealing those locations of both American and Soviet nuclear weapons because of the reaction, political reaction that it engendered with people realizing they got this stuff right next to them. Yeah. He's also one of the first ones to talk about the U.S. use of cluster bombs uh, in Iraq wow. uh, after the Gulf War. So um, he's a serious guy, right? Uh, and um, I, I, whatever he says, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean you have to agree with him 100 percent, but it, it certainly means that he's got a lot of inside resources. And, right. uh, you know, when he says something, it's it's measured. Right. Understood. Right. All right. So. Um, you know, he starts in this article and he, he starts talking about we talked about it last week about the, the Bucha effect. And um, uh, he is uh, talking uh, to U.S. Uh, you know, defense intelligence and uh, military people. Uh, basically, you know, it's on the record, but anonymously, particularly this this article has come out right after Joe Biden made a reference. Reference uh, to Russia committing genocide in Ukraine. Right. Um, that has already been walked back again by the White House, by uh, the White House press uh, press spokesman, saying it did not indicate any change in U.S. policy. But we've now heard Biden. Uh, uh, refer to the Russian president as a war criminal on top of all the other, uh, you know, butcher, uh, killer, murderer, right, dictator, right, right, and everything right, right, else. Yeah. But now they specifically use the word genocide as well. Jesse, can I and, one, one second just on that? Today, the official UN agency that's been keeping track of, of the, the High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, reports that since February 24th until last night, midnight local time, uh, the total number of killed civilians is 1,964. That's out of a population of about 41 million. So genocide is not only a stretch, it's a, an absurdity in that context, as bad as this is. I, I think more importantly, it's also important to note that the number of civilians killed so far in this conflict, and 
I'm of the opinion that every civilian casualty, you know, not just in this conflict, uh, you know, but in all the others, you yeah. know, that dies as part of collateral damage right. or, you know, as, uh, you know, shall we say crimes of, of passion during war or, 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 or actual atrocities right. is a tragedy. But this, that the, you cannot ignore the fact that the civilian casualty in the Russian campaign in Ukraine, right, um, more, you know, 20 years later is lower at this point right. than the civilian casualty of the U.S. during their invasion of Iraq in 2003. Yeah. By a factor of 10, the daily average is 336 people killed by the U.S. in Iraq from March 20th until April 9th. The total was 6,735 for 20 days in 2003. 6,735. There have been 52 days since February 24th until the 13th, yesterday of April. Oh, and there are just shy of 2,000 casualties. That's a rate of about 37 per day, or one-tenth of what the U.S. killed. And the U.S., by the way, kept killing and is still killing in Iraq. Now, do we refer to the, what, the, the, what the U.S. did in I, Iraq as genocide? No, I, I've, I've never actually heard anyone seriously say that. This is a conflict that is much more serious because Iraq was uh, at that point in 2003 already a a its military was already largely destroyed as a result of the first gulf war and you know something that I know personally cuz I served in in between the the gulf war and the Iraq war as we know it there was basically a 10 year bombing campaign of Iraq that yeah. never really ended right right and they the US air force effectively enforced a partition over uh, the northern part of the country yep. where uh, Saddam Hussein's military was was simply not allowed to go. And if they did, they were bombed and right. bombing took place on a regular basis. Right. Um, so it, it was not at, at that point any type of, of, of serious competition. Whereas when we talk about Ukraine, uh, Ukraine has uh, on paper a regular armed force of 250,000. Uh, that's just right. the regular military that if you, um, you know, don't count Russia, that's the largest military in Europe. Right. Mm. Um, and, and, um, you know, that, that's pretty significant also with the largest numbers of tanks, you know, artillery, right. uh, and other things, holdovers, uh, you know, from the Soviet, uh, um, military, but, you know, quite obvious in this, uh, what this conflict has proved is how deadly those weapons, uh, you yeah. know, are and, and still can be. In fact, the last eight years of the Kiev regime's bombing of, of Donbass has shown that significantly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and further, this is a military, right? That's just the regular military. Then you add on all the battalions, um, the territorial defense, the reserves, and the, you know, the, the, you know, like I mentioned, the far right battalions. But also that the Kiev regime has conscripted every single male in the country right. between the ages of 16 and 60. Right. 16. 
Yeah, I get it. Right? What would normally be considered child soldiers, right? So you're talking about a total on paper military force of some 600,000. And Russia went into that with a military force of 190,000. Now, usually when you are the attacker, right, um, it it is wise to have odds of somewhere between three to one and six to one. Right, right, right. That's it. Unless there is a huge technological advantage. And there's no question that Russia has an equipment advantage over Ukraine, but it is nowhere far above, you know, uh, the advantage compared to, say, the U.S. had over Iraq in 2003. Right, right, right. And this is a military that has, for the last seven years, been trained by NATO, by numerous NATO countries, pretty much endlessly, and been armed by them, and been funded and propped up by them. So um, this is a a NATO-trained military for the last seven years. Um, So it is, uh, you know, in the words of this article, a peer competitor, right? Obviously less than, but not something completely out of the ballpark. Right. So... Uh, describing, you know, what has been happening with these accusations of atrocities and the conflict in general, um, a senior official with the, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, tells uh, Arkin, it is ugly, but we forget that two pure competitors fought over Bucha for 36 days and that the town was occupied, that Russian convoys and positions inside the town were attacked by Ukrainians and vice versa. That ground combat was intense and the town itself was literally fought over. Um, And then he they go on to say, um, um, I'm not for a second excusing Russia's war crimes, right, nor forgetting that Russia invaded the country. But the number of actual deaths is hardly genocide. If Russia had that objective or was intentionally killing civilians, we'd see a lot more. Uh, than less than 0.01% of the population killed in places like Bucha. And, you know, what he's talking about there is the the, the number of there, – there isn't a, a affirmative number of, of how many um, bodies there are in Bucha, of how many people died. But the number that is repeated most often is 310. Right. Uh, some 416 in the wider area north of of Kiev, but 310 there. The population of Bucha is 37,000. Right. 310 people died, and what he is noting there by talking about it being fought over for for uh, over a month by two peer competitors that were going toe to toe in uh, this town is the fact that most of um, the those killed died as a result of collateral damage of the conflict right. raging between the two of them. Right? right? You know, again, a tragedy. Whether it was our Ukrainian artillery or Russian artillery or tanks or or whatever, but you know, uh, actually, you know, when they are referring to mass graves in the um, media, what mass grave they're actually talking about? This was dug. Um, after the 
after the uh, you know the battle was over and Russia had officially taken over and occupied Bucha, this is the people that were the collateral damage from that conflict, right? Russia uh, allowed for oversaw uh, the burial of bodies there, so it's quite that's quite different. People killed in a collateral damage between militaries, and that by all accounts is the majority of those 310. Now there are others that were not that there were obviously some bodies that that took place um after uh, the initial occupation um and uh, since then uh, uh and and bef- uh either before or right after the russian military forces pulled out um and the new york times uh did point out that on the particular road that the uh, Kiev regime forces drove journalists down on April 2nd to present this atrocity that there was actually artillery shells. And oh. by all accounts, the people that had fallen off bikes and the like uh, and, and died right there walking on the street, that some of those deaths were artillery. Right. Right. And in that case, if it happened after the uh, the Russian occupation, that would be – Kiev regime artillery firing at Russian forces in the city, which would be almost certainly unintentional. Right. Right. That would have been more collateral damage. Right. Now, there are at least, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen. We don't have a specific number, uh, though, that they had their hands tied behind their back and it appears that they were killed while prisoners right right? that could be a dozen it could be two dozen i think that that is actually to the heart of the matter out of those 310 we narrow it down to uh some bodies now i do not discount at all that the russian military um that's or should we say some members of the russian military might have killed some civilians in butcher that happens in war right we've we've heard numerous incidences of of the u.s in afghanistan u.s military um um uh taking tro you know members of the military i should say taking trophies of the afghan civilians they killed right, right. i mean that, that that stuff happens when you put uh young men in, in a war situation like this but it, it that kind of picture already narrows it down that you're not talking about a demonstrative practice of genocide or butchery or barbarity by the by the russian military you might be talking about a few isolated instances and then uh, of, of 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 soldiers that go way over the line and, and should be investigated and held accountable by the Russian government or by any, any international investigation or better off between the two of them. Now, but we also talked last week about the fact that the Ukrainian police then uh, announced on April 1st, the day before the atrocities uh, you know, were reported and first made public, right. some four days after the Russian military had withdrawn right. on the 30th of March, that the, the Ukrainian National Police officially announced a cleansing operation in Bucha, specifically, they said, of Russian collaborators. Right. Right. And the white armbands that you saw so many of those uh, people – uh, wearing so, so so many of those you know dozen or two dozen bodies um, that um, uh, that is a signifier of the Russian military or of people working with the Russian military. It means you know uh, this is a friendly uh, don't shoot. It's a the, the Ukrainians are wearing blue and uh, yellow armbands. The Russians white 
and read in different circumstances. Um, and, you know, this we talked last week about this video that was uploaded by the uh, Boatsman Boys, a territorial defense battalion that was part of this cleansing operation that was officially announced right it cannot you know it was announced on tv it was announced on in the media it was announced online um and in this video it shows a a, a couple members of the boatsman boys obviously patrolling uh, through bucha looking for people and one of them says hey there's some people without blue armbands we can shoot them Right. Right. Yeah. We could shoot anyone without a blue armband uh, was the was the way it was being said specifically. And uh, the the other guy replies, sure. Yeah. Right. right. So, I mean, that makes clear the rules of of engagement there. So questions, if there's any serious investigation and already we have the Kiev regime conducting investigation and they've brought in a few French. that, That is not an impartial objective, independent UN investigation. And it already looks like that is never actually going to happen. Right. Which which means that you you know you you could only place so much value on anything that comes out of there. But any serious investigation would be ask the, the Ukrainian police and you know the, the government, how many collaborators did you find? Right. In this collecting operation. And what exactly did you do with them? Right. right? right. So there is every a very real possibility that at least some, uh, you know, uh, if not the majority of this dozen or two dozen bodies that were not collateral damage in Bucha uh, were were actually killed by uh, the Kiev regime forces. And, you know, to give you an indication of who the boatsman's boys are, because I, I think that that is entirely relevant here. The boatsman boys are led by a character by the name of Sergei Korotik, who is actually a Belarusian born uh, uh um member right um he is a long time neo-nazi with one of the most violent and disgusting histories right it's something that you can look up online and find uh and this is his battalion they're known as the the boatsman boys he was eventually he served in azov he was eventually you know granted this battalion within the territorial defense and i just one highlight out of his long sorted history is he posted himself video of himself holding the head of a migrant that he had head that he had decapitated oh my god <laughs> Right. That's the kind of guy that this is who is is in there. Right. And this is the kind of guy who was involved in this cleansing operation. And I don't think I need to say anything more than there really needs to be an independent investigation uh, into this. But um, Arkin goes on in this article. He talks more. He talked to some British intelligence people, too, that talk about disproportionate targeting that has led to collateral damage, meaning that. He's actually what they're actually saying there is that um, the uh, Kiev regime forces have taken firing points in some residential buildings, uh, in some cases where people were still in or around those buildings, and the Russians disproportionate targeting, meaning they went after it even then. So, which technically is actually a war crime on the Kiev regime forces side, but it's a way of noting that. The civilians that died, you know, you can find fault with it, right, as 
excessive collateral damage. Yeah, and the Russians don't stopped. give a damn, and et cetera. I mean, but it is not intentional targeting. Understood. That is actually the point. Let me just pull something out of this article just to let people understand how, how ridiculous the image of what's happening is compared to what's actually happening. <clears throat> this is an official, this is from the same article that we're discussing. An official in Zel President Zelensky, Ukrainian President Zelensky's office, the actor guy, uh, named Mikhailo Podolyak, Podolyak, whatever. Um, he said NATO and the U.S. shared blame for civilian deaths, um, that, he, that the pressure not to provoke Russia hamstrung Ukraine. In other words, they're making us fight with one hand tied behind our back. And here's his quote. Russia has been shelling and bombing residential neighborhoods and shooting civilians en masse for more than a month now. He said... The result of holding back support was the anti-humanity towards Bucha and other places. In other words, he, he said 300, uh, he, when, who was, oh, here it is, hundreds, thousands murdered, torn apart, raped, tied up, raped, and murdered again. I don't know how you do that. Raped, tied, murdered, raped, right. murdered again. You know, you could mix a few of those around, but when you get murdered again in again, there... That that's pretty good. But this one, hundreds <laughs> of thousands of peaceful citizens of Ukraine killed with particular brutality. Now, again, hundreds of the, thousands the numbers now. in Bucha are 320 dead, including people who were obviously collateral damage because they're laying around next to craters where they were, uh, you know, things had flown in and blew people up. And according to... Uh, the, the UN Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, the total number of people that have been killed since February 24th until uh, this past uh, Wednesday is 1,964. So there's no hundreds of thousands of casualties, yeah. even including... Even, even if that is an under number, there's definitely not hundreds of thousands. Maybe it's 2,300 or even yeah. 3,000. It's on the same order of magnitude, obviously. Yeah, so that tells you the level of, of, of the rhetoric that is involved here. And um, uh, here at the end, uh, Arkin of the article, uh, Arkin brings up uh, again the, the scope of this whole thing and the narrative. And I, I think it's worth re reporting. Yeah. And he says, uh, talking about the true number of of uh you know uh dead civilian dead in the country so far um it's bad the dia official says well actually it's not as bad as iraq first of all right. but and i don't want to say it's not too bad but i can't help but stress that beyond the clamor we are not seeing the war clearly where there has been intense ground fighting you know most of it urban combat where the ukrainian military retreats into their own cities and, and effectively uses at least the residential buildings, if not uh, some of the people inside them, right, as as shields. Right. All right. Um, which it basically always happens when you are the defender, uh, unmatched defender in a, you know, military um, situation, to be fair. All right. Um, where there has been intense ground fighting and a standoff between Ukrainian forces, the destruction is almost total. But in terms of actual damage in Kiev or other cities outside the battle zone, and with regard to the number of civilian casualties overall, the evidence contradicts the dominant narrative. 
So I mean, and there's a a previous article I also recommend by Arkin, and that's Putin's bombers could devastate Ukraine, but he's holding back. Here's why, and he talks basically about the same thing right. uh, early on, and how Russia is actually showing restrained use of their bombing of their air force. That this was not a shock and campaign like say the u.s conducted in iraq and also that they were restricting as you know again not not completely not using but restricting the use of the the russian military's primary asset which is heavy artillery and that was actually you know for the intention of avoiding civilian casualties as much as possible but also to avoid at least in the beginning ukrainian regular military casualties when they had hoped that the majority would surrender uh, quickly which obviously didn't happen yeah you know just we're we got like a minute left or whatever but um the two things that occur to me number one uh, if if you look at it according to this article the the u.s and dia estimate that that number, say, of about 2,000 casualties that the U.N. says might go as high as five times as much that. So let's say it's 10,000 granting that. And understanding that DIA is engaged in an information war, and so probably they're inflating what their own estimate really is. But whatever, it's at 10,000. The 10,000 in two and a half months is exactly how the rate of people that were killed in shock and awe from March 20th to April 9th, it, which is, you know, one, not even one month. And, yes, and that was 6,700 people in Iraq. That was the U.S. killing so, and, and, and by the way, before that shock and awe, for 10 years, not only did they bomb that country, they admitted that they starved to death 400,000 women and children. And when asked about it, the former Secretary of State said it was worth it. So it's kind of tough to, to, to see these people try to hang a badge of uh, barbarity on Russia over, over this particular war, and we're kind of out of time. <laughs> Great. All right, Mark, yeah. thank you very much. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me, Doc. And that's all the news we have for you right now. For Community Public Radio, I'm Don DeBar in New York. Thanks for listening. <laughs>